Forgiveness Forgiveness in Scripture is a term which has reference to a court of law, God's court. It means, first, the remission of the punishment due to sins, and man's deliverance from that penalty which is imposed by God in his justice. Second, such remission rests on the vicarious and atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. In brief, forgiveness means that the charges are dropped because satisfaction has been rendered, or in the case of Luke 23.34, charges are deferred for the time being. As Vine noted, human forgiveness is to be strictly analogous to divine forgiveness, e.g. Matthew 6.12. If certain conditions are fulfilled, then there is no limitation to Christ's law of forgiveness, Matthew 18.21 and 22. The conditions are repentance and confession, Matthew 18.15-17 and Luke 17.3. That there are limits to God's forgiveness appears in Matthew 12.32 and 1 John 5.16. God's law makes clear that restitution is a central and necessary aspect of forgiveness, but, however necessary, it is secondary to the atoning work of Christ and His grace, i.e. Christ's restitution, so that our restitution is a consequence of grace, never a cause of it. This appears clearly in all of Scripture, and is summed up in two sections of the Westminster Confession. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them, as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have, not of themselves, it is the gift of God. Chapter 11, Section 1. Although repentance be not to be rested in, as any satisfaction for sin, or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, yet it is of such necessity to all sinners, that none may expect pardon without it. Chapter 15, Section 3. The confession uses the word pardon rather than forgiveness, but the meaning is the same. What is stressed is God's initiative in forgiveness. No act of repentance and restitution, or satisfaction for sin, however much of necessity to all sinners, can be seen as the ground of God's forgiveness or pardon. That rests in the act of God's free grace in Christ. Forgiveness is a crying necessity for man the sinner. As a humanist, the sinner demands that other people play God, even as he, in his sin, plays God. A frequent problem husbands and wives face with erring partners is an endless nagging for forgiveness. The sinning spouse wants to reduce the offense to a humanistic level, with only people involved. A confession is followed by a demand for forgiveness so that the sin can be blotted out. If there is any reluctance about forgiving because of a healthy distrust of the confession, there is then a bitter resentment. One man justified another act of adultery by saying of his wife, It serves her right. She was so stinky about forgiving me when I confessed to her. Absolution from sin is thus reduced to a humanistic confession and forgiveness. Forgiveness is thus entirely of man, and is essentially a matter of an exchange of words. It is more than a change of heart and restitution which is omitted. God is entirely left out. The demand is for cleansing on man's terms. In spite of all humanistic attempts at absolution, man remains guilty, in fact before God and in his own heart. The effect on man's heart is drastic. Like all things God created, man was created good, Genesis 131. 
and it is basic to man's nature to rest only in communion with God in a state of righteousness. Man in sin is man in flight from God, in hiding from God and man. The heart of his being is then veiled and covered to prevent God and man from recognizing him for what he is. If he admits to sin, or even boasts of his sin, as Lamech did, Genesis 4, 23-24, even the sin he claims as a virtue is a cover for the radical nakedness of his being. Better to reign in hell, reasoned Milton Satan, than to serve in heaven. Better to make a virtue of sin, reasons the sinner, than admit the depravity of my heart and my inner warfare. The result is hypocrisy. The sinner, in his hypocrisy, may mask his sins with seeming virtues he does not possess, or he may hypocritically find virtue in sin and boast himself of righteousness in this way. The existentialists have made a virtue of their sin and are loud in their self-praise. They forgive themselves and seek absolution in semantic exercises. The only ground of religious forgiveness, of absolution, is the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Civil forgiveness follows on restitution. Neither the guilt nor the punishment are remitted apart from him. For the Christian, forgiveness means a release from the power and penalty of sin. St. Paul declared, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Colossians 2, 13-14 Christ, by his atoning death, brings us out of the death of sin and the burden of guilt. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, he then also quickens us, or makes us alive, together with him. This forgiveness means also the blotting out of all our transgressions. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 Instead of guilt, forgiveness is by grace given to us, and the guilt is removed. In Isaiah, God declares, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and will not remember thy sins. Isaiah 43.25, see also Isaiah 44.22. The fullness of forgiveness thus involves regeneration, the remission of sins, and God's promise that he will not remember them. Man's memory of sin is a burning part of his guilt. Painful experience in which no guilt or sin is involved are themselves a troubling memory and a reminder of life's uncertainties and burdens. Even more so, the memory of sin is a hidden cancer which eats away at a man's mind with its ever-fresh reminder of guilt and folly. To be freed from the power and penalty of sin by Jesus Christ means not only new life in him, but a healing of the memory. This in itself is a revitalization of man. For the greatest tyranny men face is often the tyranny from within, the unrelenting whiplash of a guilty conscience and an unforgiven heart. The condemnation of the law is nailed to the cross, to Christ's cross, St. Paul declared. It is thus executed and destroyed, and the new man in us is made alive together with Christ. Without forgiveness and regeneration, there can be nothing new in history. Man the sinner would then endlessly repeat his sin compound his guilt, and have no escape save the hope of eternal death. Asiatic religions, recognizing this inevitable and persisting inheritance, formulated the doctrine of karma. Man's life, his cycles of birth and death, or transmigration, samsara, is a product of karma. A man's karma is the physical causation or causality in his life, 
It is the unmitigated, unforgetting, and unforgiving law of retribution, working out precisely the good and evil in his life. Because evil predominates in man, good becomes little more than a form of escape from karma, causality, into death and oblivion. History thus is an endless cycle of retribution with a minimal possibility of escape. The stagnation of the Orient has thus been religious. Islam has sought escape from the inner problem by Muhammad's religion of externalism. He is a Muslim who is one outwardly. The Orient, having developed a refined inwardness of religion, sought escape in the doctrine of karma. In both cases, stagnation has been the result, for man and society. The energy of the West has not been racial, it has been religious. Because of the fact of forgiveness and regeneration, man has been able to break out of the bondage of his past and the burden of his guilt. Instead of being chained to his karma, the causality born of Adam, man introduced a new life and a new motive force into history when he is quickened together with Christ. In the translation of Arthur S. Way, And you too, for dead you lay in the charnel house of your transgressions and the impurity of your sensual nature, you God thrilled with that same new life of Jesus. The new man in Christ, having forgiveness of sins, is able to introduce a new motive force in history and to regenerate society even as he has been regenerated. He can bring the word of God to bear on all problems and establish God's law order in every realm. Not surprisingly, the word new is a common one in scripture. Because God's people shall be the renewing force of history, God declared through Isaiah, Thou shalt be called by a new name, Isaiah 62.2, because a new nature has been given. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. Isaiah 65.17 Again, St. Paul declared, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature, or creation. Galatians 6.15 What Christ offers is a new and living way. Hebrews 10.20 The word from the throne of heaven is, Behold, I make all things new. Revelation 21.5 This emphasis on the new is uniquely biblical. It is not novelty or change, but a fresh, ongoing, revitalizing social energy and force, the power of God unto salvation.